Well, I guess life is not what I thought it was. Uh, Those words were spoken to me very recently. I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of disappointment or disillusionment with this life. I mean, have you ever looked at your circumstances, maybe your past or your prospects, and thought, I mean, is this it? I always thought life would be so much more than this. I mean, as Christians, we're not really supposed to talk that way, and so we don't, or at least that's what we're told. (laughs) You know, be joyful always and all that jazz, uh, so we can't be talking about how hard life is or how seemingly hopeless it appears. But haven't you ever just felt like pessimism seems more real in the sense that it's more accurate, more true to your daily experience than the bubbly optimism that we in church often feign? But to say that life isn't all that we hoped for, I mean, seems at times to be an insult to God, like some form of ingratitude or maybe doubt or unbelief. I mean, He saved us, but sometimes, if we're honest, it doesn't look like much of a salvation. I mean, what kind of deliverance was it anyway? And sometimes God's providence in our life is so confusing that if we didn't know better, we would call it cruelty if it wasn't from the hand of God. God is our friend and Savior. The Bible teaches us this. But there are times when we wonder, or at least if we're honest, we should wonder, I mean, what kind of friend? What kind of Savior? I mean, in fact, if you don't ever wonder that, uh, either you're outside of reality and you're just not taking your life very seriously, or maybe you've never met God, the God of the Bible. Even He knows that if you see Him, if you get Him, it will be offensive to you. It will be a stumbling block. I mean, there is a benediction in this text, a blessing, something God says, you will be a blessed one if, notice what he says, if you don't fall away because of me. Jesus says, if if you don't fall away from the faith because of me, you'll be blessed. What an odd thing to say. You know, if you see what I'm like, if you see me as I am, and you still follow, then you will be blessed. Welcome to Advent. (laughs) Or maybe a better way to put it, welcome to your life. Welcome to both the confusion and the reality of your salvation. That's what we want to see this morning. The first thing I want us to see is, uh, if you will, uh, offensive optics. Offensive optics. Our story begins with John the Baptist sitting in a prison cell. And, you know, what got him there, what landed him in this particular situation was that he confronted the political establishment and their obvious rebellion against traditional marriage and biblical sexual ethics. John, the prophet of God, the greatest prophet according to Jesus, even the greatest of those born among women prior to the kingdom of God, does what he's called to do as a prophet, and he speaks truth to political power that is so corrupt and perverse that the ruling power, Herod, has taken his own brother's wife as his wife. And so John says, the Word of God says that that's wrong. And the consequence for that was that John is now sitting in a prison cell, no longer free. 
Of course, this is what we would expect from John. It was his role in the sense of pronouncing the coming of the Messiah that he would call, he was called for people to prepare the way of the Lord because Messiah was coming. People needed to repent and be prepared for his coming. And so he goes and challenges and calls for repentance for someone who's in obvious need of it. It's not even close. I mean, when we look at our culture today, everyone, uh, it's pretty obvious that our, our morals uh, are, are so unmoored from biblical reality that it wouldn't be shocking for a Christian to say to those who hold to the current sexual ethic or whatever else, that's wrong. And so for John, the prophet, to say it, we shouldn't be surprised. But of course, the surprise is uh, that instead of him getting any sort of positive response from the leadership, he has found himself imprisoned. And so John, taking God's word seriously as a student of the Old Testament, one who has read texts like Isaiah 35, uses that same word to not only confront immorality, but also to question what is going on in Jesus's ministry. I mean, if the kingdom of heaven is supposedly at hand, like I said as the prophet, like he said as he came after me, then where are all the signs of the kingdom? I mean, how is it that I can sit in the darkness of a prison cell while an outrageously immoral politician is still moving about freely to do whatever he wants, not only before the face of the people, but apparently before the face of God himself? And so John has a few questions that he would like to ask this supposed deliverer of Israel. Are you the one? Are we still waiting for another? I mean, that is the Advent dilemma at its very core. I mean, if Jesus is the one, then there shouldn't be any more waiting. If you were the one who was to come, you read Isaiah, God will come and his recompense will be with him. He will deliver you and then the blind will see and the lame will walk and the deaf will hear. When God comes to deliver Israel, all the negative things flee away and all the blessings pour in. And so John doesn't get it. <laughs> I mean, if you were the one who is to come, then what gives? <laughs> I mean, how did we go from John so certain? I mean, from his infancy, he's, he's leaping in his own mother's womb at the entrance of Mary into his living room. You know, he baptized the Savior and witnessed the descent of the Spirit. He called to the crowd and said, behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and therefore I must decrease and he must increase, even pushing his own disciples toward Christ. That is how certain he was about the identity of the one that he had come to prepare the way for. But now we have John uncertain. I mean, if Messiah comes, where's the deliverance? I mean, John's not wrong. John is frustrated because he knows what the Bible says. <laughs> John's confused because he's not confused about what Isaiah prophesied, because he's not confused about what happens on that great coming day of the Lord. You remember what he preached? No, even now, the axe is laid at the root of the tree, and if you don't bear good fruit, God's going to cut you down. I mean, he stole from... Johnny Cash and some other people on that song, but 
If you're chaff, you will be burned, John preached. And then John points out obvious and flagrant immorality, and the only thing getting chopped down is going to be John the Baptist's head. And why? Well, because Herod's wife is so frustrated by being told that her marriage to her old husband's brother was sinful that she sends her daughter to do a strip tease for her new stepdad, and he was so pleased by the whole thing that he said, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, what I want is John the Baptist's head on a platter. And she gets her desire. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, it's not really strange that John's confused. I mean, is this really the salvation of God? Is this really what it looks like? And if you're willing to be honest with yourself, have you ever felt that? (laughs) I mean, if this is what saving is, what's the alternative? I mean, that is the feeling of Advent, which is merely the feeling of this whole age until the resurrection. The reality that life is not what you thought it was. But even worse, that God's way of acting is not what you thought it was. You know, those circumstances that John finds himself in seem to beg the question, don't they? Are you the one or do we look for another? And in the midst of our trials in this age, we come to this very same question. I mean, Lord, I've worked hard and I've tithed. You know, why am I laid off while so many others who could care less about you prosper? I mean, we raised our kids for you, Lord. And for what? You know, so they could break our hearts. We lived within our means and they get an inheritance and not us. Uh, We remained while others left and now they want a divorce. I mean, I followed you and I tried. So why can't I change? Are you the one? And if you are the Savior, then why doesn't it look like it at all? When does the whole saving part start? (laughs) Well, these are what I want to call, for lack of a better term, Advent optics. I mean, these are God's offensive optics, and they become the optics of this age, and we see that next. When Jesus seeks, yes, to bring comfort to John, but again, it's not the comfort that we want, and it's not what we would have ordered or in our expectation. And he says to John's disciples, go tell John what you see and hear. What I love about that response is they're there because someone's already told John about what they've seen and heard, and that's why he's so frustrated. (laughs) And he says, now go back and tell John the same things that you've already seen and heard. Go tell John the blind see and the lame walk, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He takes a smattering of Old Testament prophecies and he just starts to list them off. Maybe you heard them in Isaiah 35, the blind receive their sight. Or maybe you heard the ones in Psalm 146, you know, the lame walk and, and prisoners are set free. <laughs> Jesus is going to force John to put on new, new eyes for this age a way of interpreting time and life in the midst of despair. And all he gives him is a sermon. Go and tell John about my deeds. Report to him what I've done. And that's all you get. 
That's all God gives us in this age to keep us holding on to the salvation that he preaches. And notice it's happening, isn't it? The blind do see and the lame do walk and the deaf do hear in Christ's ministry. So God is obviously keeping his word, isn't he? Well, yes. And no. (laughs) I mean, not in the way that John expects. There's no mention, you'll notice, Jesus skips out on the prisoners being loosed. There's no overthrow of the wicked in anything that Jesus says. There's no grand victory for Israel. There's no reestablishment of a national throne. But yes, in one sense, Isaiah 35 is being fulfilled. The blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing, at least some blind and some deaf, but not all the deaf and not all the blind. Can we know what God is doing just by looking around? And that's what Christ is really forcing John to wrestle with. John expects to see things in a certain way, and Jesus says, you can see them if you're looking with the right eyes, but you have to reinterpret this world through a new lens now, a lens that God puts on where his ways are not our ways, his thoughts are not our thoughts. And if you're waiting for God to make sense to you, if you're waiting for a God that will come to you that is not offensive to your natural senses, you are going to be waiting a long, long time. His ways are offensive to us by nature. When we want our strength to be strong and we want our winning to look like winning, but God, as Luther taught, always works under the opposite. He loses in order to win. He preaches dying in order to live and giving in order to receive, weakness in order to be strong, and humility in order to be exalted. It's terrible. (laughs) And it's offensive when it actually enters into your existence. It's so easy to talk about. The humble shall be exalted. So why do you talk back so much? (laughs) Why is it so hard to be the first to say, forgive me? Why do you have to prove your point? Because while it's easy to say at church, it's a whole nother thing when it comes to us in the concrete experiences of this life and it doesn't look like salvation is supposed to look. The poet W.H. Auden put it this way, if a man who is in love is asked, what gives his beloved such unique value for him over all other persons? He can only answer, she is the fulfillment of all my dreams. If the questioner has undergone any similar experience, the subjectivity of this answer causes no offense because the lover makes no claim that everyone else needs to feel the same. He not only admits that she is beautiful, means she is beautiful for me, but not necessarily for you, but he glories in that admission. But if a man who professes himself a Christian is asked why he believes Jesus to be the Christ, his position is much more difficult. Since he cannot believe this without meaning that all who believe otherwise are in error, and yet at the same time he can give no more objective answer than the lover. I believe because he fulfills none of my dreams, because he's in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. Thus, if a Christian is asked why Jesus and not Socrates or Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad, perhaps all he can say is none of these others arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. 
Auden says, when you meet Jesus as he is, so offensive is he to your senses, that the only impulse would be, that one needs to be crucified. And so we move finally to the benediction of the scandalous God. Jesus gives us a blessing. The blessing of a people living in the in-between times from his first coming until his second coming. You are blessed if you don't fall away on account of Jesus. You are blessed by God if you're not scandalized by God. (laughs) So what's so offensive about God? I mean, nearly everything. (laughs) The whole will and way of God. He doesn't act like we want. He doesn't do what we want. He doesn't save the way we want. He won't sanctify us the way we want. And of course, he is telling John and his disciples this before he gets crucified like a criminal by the Roman nation state and at the hands of religious leaders that rejected Christ's ministry. John, if you hate what you see now, just wait until you see how I win. (laughs) I mean, if this jail thing's a problem, the cross is going to be even more of a problem. Paul tells us the cross is a scandal on. It is an offense. It's scandalous because of it's not how deities act. That's not how we order our gods. It's a scandal because we want our heroes and our saviors to act like heroes and saviors. Luther said, the world is offended that Christ is just so miserable and poor. If he had just, you know, come looking a little better, acting a little better, just, you know, putting his best foot forward for the job interview. But it's a scandal not just because of the way he comes, but because of what it says. The cross says to those who think God doesn't care about right and wrong that he takes sin deadly serious. So for those who say, well, you know, God won't judge sinners because he's just so nice. And that's how we want him. We want to order him like that. And God says, no, I really do care about sin. It's horrific to me, and I really will judge each and every one of them. It says to the one who thinks that they're righteous, and they just want God to clean this world up and get rid of all these people who are messing up the whole show and gumming up the works and putting grease uh, or splattering oil all over the kitchen, that he is only interested in rescuing the unclean and the broken and the people who are doing the breaking. That he comes for the sick and the needy and not for the well. It's a scandal because of what it means for us even now. This life, our life, is a life that is born by and will be shaped by that very cross. It's God's way of saving It's his only way of saving, which means the saving that he's doing in your life right now is going to be shaped just like a cross. It's going to have a cruciform attribute to it. As Auden goes on to say, the inevitable is what will seem to happen to you purely by chance. The real is what will strike you as really absurd. Unless you are certain you are dreaming, then it's certainly a dream of your own. Unless you exclaim, this must be some mistake, then you must be mistaken. Auden's saying, if you get how the gospel works, and if you get how the cross works in this life, and if you get the way that God works in saving his people, that every time you think God is messing up and there must be some mistake, 
that there is God in all of His glory, saving and sanctifying sinners. And blessed are you if you're not scandalized by that God. If you don't give up in the middle of it, if you don't take offense at the way He's chosen to save. I mean, this God who has become known on purpose by His shame, who comes incarnate as a man, and not to some royal family, at least not in the state that he was found, but to poor Mo, Joseph and Mary in a no-good town of Nazareth to get a following of people who really don't rank anyway. This God honors his name and his reputation by joining himself to our shame and our humiliation. That's how he's decided to be known. And he isn't asking to be defended. And he's not trying to defend himself. His argument to John is, listen, I am saving. I'm making all things new. It just doesn't look like you thought. And his argument to you is the same. That Christianity never promised you freedom from suffering. In fact, it placed suffering literally at the crux, at the crossroads, the center of your very story. It is not hidden unless we are hiding it or hiding from it. Charles Williams, one of the Inklings, put it this way. We are relieved from the burden of being naturally optimistic. No. God bless the Hallmark Christmas movies, but we are relieved from the burden of being naturally optimistic. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth together. If we are to rejoice always, then it must be a joy consonant with that. We need not infinite relief. We need not force ourselves to deny the mere burden of breathing. Life, experience suggests, is a good thing, and somehow it's unendurable. At least the Christian faith has denied neither side of this paradox. You see, what he means by that is this, that while the cross and the life that is born from the cross does give you permission to say, while it's a wonderful life, things don't always go wonderfully, <laughs> that that same cross that offends is also the only comfort we have, the only place to stand in a solid space and know who you are in this age. The word of the cross is surety, that the God who is confusing and offensive is good. This God who at now in his providence has given you things that are hard to endure and nearly impossible to understand and surely impossible for you to untangle in your finite mind is the God himself who joined himself to your nature, who joined himself to your very sufferings, who lived a life full of suffering that not only is similar to yours, but outstrip yours. And he even took the suffering that your ultimate sins deserve. And so while the cross is offensive in one light, it is also our only comfort in life and in death that the God who is mysterious and whose ways are not ours has chosen to make himself known 
as the crucified God for sinners. That whatever else can be said of him, however else, whatever confusion he may cause, he presents himself in the humility of death for sinners in order that you might know that whatever you're experiencing, he knows in the sense that he genuinely knows by experience, but he also knows. And while his thoughts are not yours and his ways are not yours, his purposes for you are for your good and for your salvation. And one day those things that are so hard to see now with the optics of this age will be brought to light. Sighing and suffering will flee away, but not yet. What we have now is a cross. A cross that both presents to us our suffering, but also is our only hope for salvation and is given to us week in and week out in words and in bread and in wine in order that we might be strengthened not to, uh, quote-unquote, succeed in this age, but to have the great benediction of not being offended by God, but instead being drawn to Him through these sure words of promise. May you not be offended by Him this morning, but see Him as altogether lovely, even if He's not altogether able to be understood. Let's pray.